Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Acts 21. If you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to get you one. We've got a brand new one uh, in the back uh, that we would love for you to have. Um, we've been, this is our 21st week in the book of Acts, and we've been kind of going through it chapter by chapter. Our commitment here is to expositional preaching, which means we go through books of the Bible, usually small sections at a time. If we were going through a letter, we would take smaller portions. But as we go through the story, Acts is a what we call historical narrative, a true story. And so we want to let the drama unfold. So we're taking in, you know, sort of bigger sections as uh, we go along. I don't know if kids still do this in school, but when, when I was in seventh grade, uh, one of my teachers, it was the spring of that year, one of our teachers had us bring in some personal items. And as a class, we put a bunch of personal items in, in what she called a time capsule. And then we bury that, that time capsule somewhere on the school campus there in, in North Dayton, where I went to junior high. We, we were surrounded by acres and acres of woods, and so we had the room to do that. And so, you know, this was 1984, so I'm sure that we brought in uh, leg warmers and neon glow sticks and things of that nature that were common to the 80s, um, fanny packs and so on. Um, but along with those items that, that we put into the time capsule, we were also asked to write on a piece of paper and sign our name to it what we imagined life would be like 50 years from then when we, we would, when we would regather and open that time capsule together. Now, there was nothing scheduled at that time, so I have no idea um, if or when this will ever take place or if I'll be invited. I was not uh, my teacher's favorite by any stretch. Um, but it was a fun exercise as a seventh grader to kind of imagine what life would be like in half a century. Of course, we had no, no idea. Now, authors and producers make millions of dollars uh, imagining a future world, what we call a dystopian novels. They, they look at uh, all the negatives. They speculate on what negative social and political structures will exist in the future um, for example, in 1992, the, the English novelist by the name of P.D. James wrote a book called The Children of Men, in which she imagines what life will be like in 2021. So this is kind of cool, right? I mean, we're in 2021, and so um, what she envisions is this particular societal structure, particular world, uh, this was some 30 years, you know, again, in advance of when she was writing, and in this world that she imagines in 2021... Because of the choices that, that humans have made, um, humankind is actually dying out. And, she says, there was this unexplainable uh, infertility that had happened to men, and so for three years, no children had been born. So there was no, really no hope of any children being born. It was kind of the end of mankind was, was on the horizon, and what she says happened was this sent people into this terrified self-centeredness where they're willing to do anything for security, comfort, and pleasure. So all of a sudden, nothing matters to people more than their personal well-being. And she's, you know, she's looking ahead, remember, 30 years. Um, now, how do you imagine that people said goodbye to one another when they left? They said, be safe, be safe. But there is this little group of five rebels, five misfits of different ages, backgrounds, and abilities 
who go around telling people, look, there's more to life than just being safe. There's more to life than just experiencing pleasure. There's more to life than comfort. But very few will listen. In fact, uh, this little group of five misfits, they garner uh, quite a bit of opposition. They become hated outcasts in a world where self-preservation trumps every other virtue. Now, if you don't see the irony of this, you will uh, in just a minute. For about half of the 21 weeks we've been in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul has been the key figure. Of course, we started earlier with folks like Peter and James and John and Stephen, but most of our time over the last uh, third of the book has been looking at the Apostle Paul, and we've seen he's gone through some incredible suffering. He has, um, he's been imprisoned, stripped, beaten, flogged, abandoned. Um, he's been falsely accused of things that he never committed. So he's gone through all of these terrible things, and this is nothing that he wishes for. This is nothing that he wants to happen, but also he doesn't shy away from it. In fact, he marches headlong into scenarios where he knows that he'll be persecuted. In Acts 21, where we arrived this morning, Paul has just said goodbye to the Ephesian elders. We looked at that last week. And Paul and a few of his closest friends have set sail for Jerusalem so they can make it in time for the feast. Well, this is where it all began in terms of the mission of Christ. And so Paul, when he gets back there, well, according to Acts 21, Paul and his companions have been hopping from one ship to another, connecting with some old friends along the way, and then they make it to Caesarea to Philip's house, and they stay with him for several days. So uh, let's pick up with Acts chapter 21, verses 8 through 11. Here reads the word of the Lord. On the next day, we, remember this is Luke writing, but it includes Paul and a couple of others. We departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So you may recall if you were around back then, this is probably six months ago, we were in Acts chapter 6, and we met Philip. Philip was one of the, uh, the first deacons. He was one of the first seven called to serve the church, care for the administrative and mercy ministries of the church. Um, well, here we are. This is, this is almost 20 years later, by the time we get to Acts 21. And Philip had gotten married, settled down in Caesarea, had four uh, lovely daughters. But the real show stealer in this scenario is a guy by the name of Agabus. Agabus, um, he shows up, he takes Paul's belt, and he wraps himself in the belt, his hands and feet in the belt, and he acts out what will happen to Paul if Paul goes to Jerusalem. This is kind of like the game of charades that nobody wants to play, right? Which is actually any time charades is played for me. Um, but if I'm Paul, I would have been like, okay, look, just tell me what you're trying to say here. You don't have to act it out. Look, just use your words. But he goes through this exercise as a way of showing, this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, he's acting out what will happen to Paul if he goes to Jerusalem. Basically, Paul will be bound in chains and thrown in prison, um, which really troubles Paul's closest friends. They don't want this to happen. Now look at verses 12 through 14. 
when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. So the Holy Spirit warns Paul what will happen to him if he goes to Jerusalem. And Paul's friends, of course, who were there during this whole charade routine, they don't want him to go. They don't want him to suffer. Now, so much of communication today is done by emojis, right? And, uh, and gifts. And, you know, I, use, I probably use emojis and gifts as much as I use words. I have four kids between the ages of 15 and 23. And so we have entire conversations using just emojis and gifts. Um, well, when we read about Paul's response to his worried friends here, we might think that Paul's attitude or emotions might be captured best by this emoji. Look, I mean, he's, he's got to be sad, right? He's sad by all this. He's, he's really weeping over this. But that's not really the case. An emoji that better captures Paul's feelings is this. He's actually frustrated. He's actually really upset. It's not as though, because it's interesting, the, the Greek word here used to describe, uh, as translated, you're breaking my heart, is, is a word that implies they're stomping on his heart. They're, they're pounding his heart. It's from this Greek word, sunthrupto, which, which is a word that was used to describe those people who would beat their laundry clean. And so Paul is actually annoyed by his friends. He's frustrated. He's ready to go even if it means dying for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. Now, I want to make this clear. Paul does not have a death wish. He doesn't want to die, uh, but he's not afraid to die. And by the way, this promise of suffering is not new to the Apostle Paul. We saw in Acts 20 back on the beaches of Miletus um, where Paul says that the Holy Spirit actually testified that in every city that he goes in persecution and in prison await. But he will not be discouraged or dissuaded by the threat of persecution, imprisonment, nor the sickness that almost always accompanied imprisonment, not even death. In fact, nothing will stop him. Here's the point that Paul is making. This is our, our first point this morning, if you're taking notes. There are some things far worse than persecution, sickness, and even death. There are some things far worse, that extra word things shouldn't be in there, than persecution, sickness, and even death. The last eight, 18 months have been the strangest, um, most volatile most, most polarizing period that I can remember in my uh, 50 years of existence. Politics and preferences and one-sided reports have separated the best of friends, even family members. There are families where one member will not talk to another. Christians have turned on each other, blasting one another at times without even talking to each other at times. Based simply on Facebook and Instagram posts or perceived uh, differences of opinions, they've gone off on one another via social media. We've become, as a society, terrified 
and self-centered, very much like what P.D. James envisioned 30 years ago. What's the first thing we think of when we hear someone else is sick? Isn't it, when's the last time I was around that person? It's not, oh, I feel horribly for them. No, I want to pray for them. No, what are they going through? It's, have I been exposed to what they have? I'm telling on myself here more than anybody else. This is what we think. When's the last time I had contact with that person? But what's behind all this? Isn't it the idol of self-preservation? I don't want to get sick, we think. And trust me, I don't want to get sick. I really don't. I'm a terrible sick person. I hate being sick. I hate to slow down for one minute. Getting sick is terrible. But there are worse things than getting sick. And I wonder if we've forgotten this. I see people living in abject fear. I see people staying away from their own family members for months, years, staying away from their church family because they fear getting sick. I see people who look like they've aged 20 years in the last two years because they live in absolute terror. Now, don't get me wrong. I think we should employ wisdom. I think we should be cautious. I think we should be prudent. I think there are legitimate reasons to stay away. I think if you have COVID, you should quarantine. But what I'm seeing, from what I'm seeing, there are some who seem to believe, at least by their actions, that this life is all there is. And there's nothing after this. And that's why their ultimate goal seems to be to stay safe. Well, you might ask, what is worse than getting sick? What is worse than dying? It's entering into eternity apart from God. It's entering into eternity unreconciled to God under His just wrath because we put our trust in our own safety measures and our own ingenuity rather than the person and work of Jesus. What could be worse than getting sick or dying? Standing before the judgment of God with no acceptable answer as to why we should be granted entrance into heaven and no acceptable defense for our rebellion, which is what happens to everyone who rejects Jesus Christ and refuses to repent and believe. But there is an acceptable answer as to why we should be granted entrance into heaven. There is an acceptable defense that we can offer that will satisfy a holy God, and it's this. I have repented of my sins and believed on Jesus Christ, the one who lived for me, died for me, and was raised to life. Therefore, Christ is my only righteousness. And we say this together every time we recite this portion of the Heidelberg Catechism and answer the question, what is my only hope in life and death? This is what we say together, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. By His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. And I would add to that, and willing even to die for Him. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Look at verse 13 again. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Why is Paul so willing to be persecuted? 
to endure sickness and even die for the name of the Lord Jesus, he says. In other words, so that Jesus Christ will be exalted and recognized as He truly is, the only true Savior and Lord of the world. Paul knows that by his suffering, not only will he see the gospel advance, but also in, Christ, in Paul's suffering, he is participating in the suffering of Christ and thereby being refined and made ready for the glory that awaits. But it still begs the question, doesn't it? How does a person get there? I mean, how do we actually get to the place where we're willing to get sick, willing to die, willing to be persecuted for the name of Jesus? Well, we're told in the next section, look at verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. I want to pause there because this is such a beautiful homecoming. Again, this is the place, this is the city of David, the launching point for the mission of Jesus. This is where Paul was first welcomed in by the rest of the apostles, even though initially they were skeptical because they knew something of his past. This is where Paul forged these incredible friendships. So when Paul gets to Jerusalem, he meets right away with the elders there, and they just delight in one another. This is the way the people of God do when they get together. They delight in one another. And then on the next day, Paul connects with Jesus' brother, James, the lead pastor, we might say, of the church at Jerusalem. And what do they do when they get together? Look at verses 18 through 20. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. So the fact that so many Gentiles had come to faith was, was a reason, among others, to praise God for His power and His faithfulness. Remember, the, the first century Jews, they believed, they actually insisted that God's salvation was only for them, only for the children of Abraham. They were the heirs of the promises of God. They were the, the people of God. And so they didn't believe that salvation should have been extended to the Gentiles. But incredibly, what we've seen is all of these Gentiles coming to saving faith, trusting in Jesus Christ through the ministry of the apostles. We've seen all kinds of people. We've seen magicians and sorcerers and idol worshipers and Roman officials and soldiers and jailers and criminals and businesswomen, a eunuch. God has brought all kinds of people to saving faith. And these are all the things that the elders and Paul say God has done, verse 19. This is all a testimony to the breadth and power of God's grace. It is the amazing grace of God, His kindness and love to the most undeserving that gives Paul confidence that whatever he faces in the future, persecution, imprisonment, beating, sickness, death, whatever it is, God will continue to be faithful. And he has something incredible in store for Paul in the future. So, so here's our second point. Faith in God's future grace is fueled by the evidences of God's past grace. Faith in God's future, and I realize fueled is misspelled. This is not, this is on Justin, this is on me. Faith in God's future grace is fueled by the evidences of God's past grace. So when we look back at what God has done, His faithfulness, His kindness, His grace, His mercy, that then, that then bolsters our faith in the good things that God has in store for us. So think about for a moment what God has done in your life. What are the evidences of God's past grace in your life? Think about what God has done in your life over the past year, the last five years, 
uh, the last 20 years. Are you the same person you were 20 years ago? If you're in Christ, you shouldn't be. Think about the ways that God has protected you, preserved you, delivered you from situations you thought impossible. Think about the, the gifts that God has given you. Think about the people that God has put into your life. Think about where you were when God saved you. I've got a friend who, fellow pastor in Ohio who does a lot of helping people talk through their testimony. And, you know, a lot of people, they, they, they love Jesus. They say they love Jesus, but they really have never thought about how do I actually talk about salvation, testimony. And so one of, this thing, one of the things my friend says often is he says, don't diminish the dark days. In other words, don't minimize who you were before God saved you. Don't make light of your sinfulness. Don't, don't make light of your, your, your rebellion. What some people do when they talk about their days before God saved them is they talk about it as if they just were kind of misguided, uh, maybe uninformed, maybe slightly confused. They were still really good people, and they still, you know, they still love God and so on, but they talk about the days before Christ as if not really a lot happened when they were made alive in Christ. Maybe they made some bad choices. But in reality, before God saved you, you were an enemy of God. You weren't a friend of God. You were at odds with God. That's what every person is outside of Christ. Not a nice person who just needs some more information, but a person who is living in active rebellion against God's authority. So you don't have to be a drug dealer, a serial adulterer, a pornographer, a violent person, to have been miraculously transformed. In fact, if you are in Christ, you were, at the moment you were born again, brought to repentant faith by the work of the Holy Spirit, transformed from being a self-loving, self-glorifying, self-seeking sinner to a God-loving, God-glorifying new creation in Christ. Your past was forgotten by God. You were totally and completely forgiven because of the work of Christ. You were transformed into a new person and transferred into a new spiritual realm, the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And all of that was only because of God's grace. And there's great value in reflecting on that regularly. All of that was on Paul's mind. What do you think Paul was thinking when he is told by the Holy Spirit that when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer? Well, he's thinking... God has been faithful in the past, and yeah, I prob I'm going to suffer because I'm told I will. But God will do exactly what He wants to do, which will be ultimately for my good and His glory. Paul is relying on, trusting in the past grace of God, and that fuels his faith in God's future grace. It's not just all those things that God has done, but he's also thinking of the promise of being with God forever. We know that God has prepared a place for those who love Him, for those He has chosen and called. And because God is faithful, there's nothing we can do to lose that place that God has in store for us. And there's nothing anybody else can do to take us away from that place or to prevent us from getting there. Uh, Peter Kreeft, who's a philosopher and theologian, kind of helps us get a sense of this in his, his book called Heaven, the Heart's Deepest Longing. He says, imagine that God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future, and you saw with absolute certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, 
you would have before you your whole heart's deepest desire. Heaven, eternal joy. He says, would you return then from that excursion afraid that you might get sick? Would you return from that excursion worried that one day you might die? Or would you return fearless and singing? Because what can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss, he says, would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny or even less, a scratch on a penny. I don't know any billionaires, but I think this is an easy question to answer. Does a billionaire stay awake at night, worry that someone may vacuum up the loose change in his couch? I don't think he or she does, do you? No, because what they see is the smallness of that, the loose change, in light of everything else they possess. Well, the follower of Jesus is not terrified of getting sick, doesn't endlessly fret over contracting COVID, and doesn't even, frankly, worry about death. Yes, they exercise wisdom and they take precautions and all of that stuff is God-honoring, but they don't worry all the time. They're not terrified at every moment because neither sickness nor death will keep those of us who are in Christ from our Savior, the one who promises to be with us both now and for all eternity. Now, there's a very interesting development that takes place that I want to look at and briefly touch on, verses 20 through 26. And when they heard it, they glorified God. This is the elders and Paul and Luke. And they said... To him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. So here's where this whole thing takes a turn for the worse. They are zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there's nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance with the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. This goes all the way back to the Jerusalem Council of earlier chapters. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. And you say, what in the world is going on here? Well... On the surface, this seems like really one of the strangest sections, at least in the book of Acts. Paul is back among his brothers, and he's beautifully received, and they delight in one another. They talk about all the things that God has done. But then they say to him, look, we want you to know not everybody is going to be happy to see you. In fact, a lot of people are not going to be happy at all because your reputation right now is really, really bad. What Agabus and others said about Paul over at James's house was true. The crowd would be out for Paul's head. Why? Because they believed that Paul was demeaning their laws and customs and actually instructing Jewish converts not to obey their law, which is not really true at all. 
If you were last week, we saw that Paul has a singular message that he proclaims. It's the message that he says, I want to live long enough so that I can proclaim this message to all people. And it's what he calls the gospel of the grace of God. Namely, that at the heart of of Christianity is not a message about us getting our act together or, quote, living for God or any list of things we can do to inch our way closer to God. But at the heart of Christianity is the news of what God, out of His love and through His Son, has done for an undeserving people to claim them, to redeem them, to rescue them, to forgive them, to bring them to Himself and live with them forever. That was Paul's message. Well, in saying that, Paul then necessarily also says, there are no rituals, regardless of how spiritual you may think they are, that will earn for you God's favor. Not being circumcised, not eating certain foods or refraining from eating certain foods, not drinking certain things or refraining from certain things, um, not observing certain festivals or days or weeks or whatever it was. Paul says there's nothing you can do, there's no celebration, there's no activity, there's no work, there's no even revered tradition of the Jewish faith that can save you. None of those things will save anyone. A person is saved by faith alone in Christ alone. So Paul wasn't telling anybody, hey, don't keep the law. Ignore the law. But what he was saying was that the law can't save you. Keeping the Jewish law, keeping the traditions, it will not save you. Well, that message was an affront to the Jews in Jerusalem where Paul from uh, well, where Paul had recently arrived, right? So what the elders in Jerusalem tell Paul is, look, there are four guys who've taken a Nazarite vow, which was a involved three, de- three offerings to God and shaving your head. And the elders say to Paul, we want you and the four, we want you to take the four other guys and we're going to participate in this vow with them and we, we want you to, to pick up the tab for all this. Which sounds really strange, doesn't it, to our ears. Today, of course, the shaving of one's head is a symbol of beauty, strength, and knowledge. Um, but that's not the way it was back then. Uh, Today, of course, it's the evidence of a perfectly shaped dome. But that's not what was going on back then. It was a purifying act. And so what these men were saying to Paul was, they've been saying, you've been outside of Israel, you've been in Gentile territory, and we've heard about what you're saying to everybody. So now that you've come back into Israel, we want you to participate in this purifying vow, three offerings to God and shaving your head as a way to say that you're no longer unclean. And Paul actually goes along with it, which this, sent, this has sent biblical scholars into a tizzy for uh, decades. They say, in fact, some commentators that I read said this, this can't be true. This is the preacher of the grace of God. This is the Apostle Paul. He would never subject himself again to this sort of law. One commentator uh, concluded that Luke had to make this up. Paul would never do such a thing. One other, uh, and then of course, commentators have made all kinds of comparisons. One person said it would be like John Calvin agreeing to worship Mary, the mother of Jesus. It would never happen. My first thought would, was this would be like Brett Benvenuti wearing Ohio State Buckeyes jersey, right? It's just not, I mean, we're talking about this is so far fetched. Like, why would he do this? Why would Paul do this? And of course, you can make all kinds of comparisons. But Paul agrees to do this as a way of becoming all things to all people. 
Paul knows that shaving his head is not going to make him closer to God. Participating in the Nazarite vow is not going to make him closer to God. It's not going to gain any favor from God. But he does it in order to remove any unnecessary obstacles for the advancement of the gospel. It's strategic, it's humble, and it's sacrificial. Here's our final point this morning. Cultural intelligence, which is sometimes referred to as CQ, and personal sacrifice are critical to the Christian's witness so long as the gospel is not compromised. So cultural intelligence means being aware of the practices, the convictions, the language, and the behaviors of a particular culture and being sensitive to what those customs, practices, languages, behaviors are. I learned this the hard way um, in 2004. I, I spoke at a conference in Sydney, Australia. And uh, after the conference, there were about 12 of us. I was speaking on a biblical worldview, on uh, developing a biblical worldview. And after the conference, there were about 12 of us Americans who were invited to watch a rugby game on TV with our Australian hosts. And, you know, was, we went to one guy's house and massive TV, and it was a blast. There was it was loud, and, and there was screaming and yelling and clapping. Well, in one very quiet moment during a, a commercial, I kind of yelled across the room to our Australian host uh, that I'd just gotten to know. I said, hey, for which of these teams are you rooting? And everybody just stopped and stared at me. I thought, well, apparently he didn't hear me. I said, hey, for which of these teams are you rooting? Um, and my American host looked as though he wanted to crawl under a rock. The term rooting in Australia means something very different than cheering. Um, it was a very offensive word that had sexual connotations. And, uh, of course, I had no idea. I didn't know what I, what I was saying to him. That's why I was even louder the next time. Um, I lacked cultural intelligence at that moment. It had almost cost me. Um, knowing the customs and the practices and the language and the convictions of a certain culture can help or hinder our witness. This is particularly important when we're doing cross-cultural ministry. This is why Western missionaries spend so much time learning the culture before they actually go and they minister sort of in pocket or in country. But applied more broadly, I think it actually applies to us. I think it means for us not to allow our freedoms in Christ nor our personal preferences to become obstacles in our Christian witness. So, Look, one of the greatest joys of being a Christian, of course, along with being reconciled to God the Father and having Christ as our brother and our Savior and experiencing the once-for-all forgiveness for all of our sins and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, but one of the greatest joys is the freedom that we have in Christ. We are free from the law. In other words, we're no longer measured by it. It can no longer condemn us. We are free from sin. It is no longer our master. We are free from God's wrath, which rests squarely on all who reject God. We are free from the opinions, the judgments, and the traditions of others. But our freedom is never to be enjoyed at the spiritual expense of others. The great New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce says something very intriguing. He says, a truly emancipated spirit like Paul's is not in bondage to its own emancipation. In other words, Christian freedom is a wonderful thing. It's one of the greatest joys of being a believer. 
But sometimes clinging to our freedom can be counterproductive. Here in Acts 21, Paul is making a concession by participating in this vow and so on without compromising the gospel. So let me make it very practical. You might enjoy a dark ale with dinner. Okay, that's great. That's wonderful. But if you're around someone who's struggling with alcoholism, why not get a Mountain Dew instead? You might be passionately pro-vaccine or zealously anti-vaccine. Okay, that's fine. But why would you let that be the conviction that alienates you from people who need to hear about Jesus? Maybe a personal sacrifice for you is to let some conversations take place without you weighing in. Or maybe show, by showing grace to those who have differing opinions, maybe by doing so you may gain a listening ear as it relates to matters far more important. You might be a diehard Alabama football fan. And that's fine. That's fine. But if you're around immature fans of another school, why provoke them by being obnoxious or aggressive? That doesn't benefit anybody, does it? Now, I couldn't say that my first six months here. I can say it after three plus years here, right? You might like only the old hymns of the faith. That's the only kind of music that ministers to you. Or maybe you only like Christian hip-hop, where the bass, you can feel the bass in your chest. Well, either way, it's okay. Why not learn to value all of it for the sake of those with different opinions? Paul was willing to go along with this Nazarite vow, which he knew didn't accomplish anything. He knew he would be no closer to God, perhaps better looking, with his head shaved. He knew none of that was going to do anything. But he went along with it because he did not want to become a stumbling block. He didn't want to hinder those to whom he might share the gospel. He was willing to go along with it even though he knew it had no purifying power. But he did so so that nothing would impede his witness for Christ. Now, it didn't really help. We're going to see next week or in a few weeks. When Paul was spotted by the Jews from Asia, they said, there he is. And he was arrested, dragged out of the temple, and beaten. And we're going to check in with his response later in the series. But Paul was willing, and I'll end with this. He was willing to suffer. He was willing to be persecuted. He was willing to imprison. He was even willing to die. Because he was constantly looking back on God's past grace. With a great hope then and confidence in God's future grace. And that's what stirred him to do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us, Lord. Help us to so, be so committed to the advancement of the gospel and so burdened for those who are without Christ that our preferences don't become chief in our affections. They're not what we um, cling to with the greatest passion. But we want to do, we're willing to make concessions. We're willing to make personal sacrifices. We're willing to set aside even temporarily our own freedoms so that others may be introduced to the wonderful grace of God in Christ. And Father, I pray you'd help us this morning to believe it, to walk according to it. And I pray, Lord, for those who are here this morning who don't know Christ, 
that they would experience your grace both, both supernaturally by your spirit, but also naturally by the people around them. Cause it to be so, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.